I love to uh, wrestle with my boys. If for no other reason than just to remind them that I'm still stronger than them in case they get any ideas. And they know that this type of play, this kind of intensity of play is something that they can only get from me. They're not going to get this from their mother because their mother is usually more sane than me and usually more pregnant than me. Um, And so they come to me to wrestle, to roll around on the ground for a bit. But all good things have to come to an end. And so there's a time when the wrestling is over. But they don't want it to be over. And so they have their different ways of petitioning for more. And our youngest one, for the longest time, his way of petitioning for more is by saying, more, more. But he's in this language explosion stage. And so he's developed a new technique to try and get more. And it looks like this. One more time. (laughs) One more time. One more time, daddy, will you be daddy to me? Will you do that thing that only you can do? Come on, daddy. One more time. And I look down at those earnest eyes, begging his daddy to be his daddy, to do that thing that only he can do. And it's like, okay, one more time. Knowing full well that it's not just going to be one more time. Because as soon as that one more time is done, it's just going to be again, one more time, one more time. And so I pick him up and I flip him around to the horror of his mother and we all have a great time. But this is the heart and the posture that we need to have towards God, to look at our Father and look to Him saying, one more time, God. God, will you do that thing that only you can do? God, will you be God to me and make a way where I cannot make a way? God, will you do it one more time? Our guide this Advent has been the Psalms. And this morning we're reading from Psalm 85. And in that psalm, we have the psalmist speaking on behalf of Israel, saying to God, one more time, will you do it again? God, will you be God to us? God, will you do that God thing, that that thing that only you can do? God, one more time. The psalmist starts in the past tense, looking to the times when God had done it before. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. The psalmist is turning to God to do his God thing because he knows that he has done it before. He knows the types of things that this God does. Our Old Testament reading this morning was referring to one of those moments where Israel had been in exile and God was now calling them out, saying that their sentence had been completed, was restoring them. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Lord, you've done it before. And then the psalmist moves into the present tense to make that petition, that statement of God, will you just do it again one more time? You see, Israel had found itself once again in a place of strife, of conflict, of not shalom. And this morning, as we light the candle of shalom, of peace, the psalmist petitions God, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Surely not. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Surely not. Will you not revive us 
that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. God, make peace where there is no peace. Make a way where we cannot find a way. But the psalmist has confidence in God, which is why the psalmist is turning to God, because God has done it before. What they need is peace. And then he moves the future tense. Let me hear what the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, and not let them turn back to folly. Here we have the witness of the psalmist turning to God in the time of need, choosing not to trust in the strength of Israel and the strength of this nation to pull itself up by its bootstraps and to figure out what it needs, but to wait on God and turn to him, knowing that he is what we really need. He is the one who makes peace because we cannot make it for ourselves. Walking through the past, present, future in this petition to God to do it again one more time. And if you know our God, if you know our Father and know His heart, you know that He cannot look at His child who's looking back at Him with those big earnest eyes and asking God to be God, asking Him to do what only He can do. He cannot look at those and not sweep His child up in His arms and say, yes, I will revive you again. I will restore your fortunes again. Yes, I'll do it one more time and one more time again and one more time again. This is the nature of our God. And so first and foremost, here in this time of Advent, we need to learn the lesson from the psalmist to wait on God, to turn to Him for the thing that only He can do, rather than trusting in our own strength. One of our companions this Advent is Tish Harrison Warren, with her appropriately titled book, Advent. And uh, in it, she kind of describes this need, this phenomenon. She says, my yearly practice of waiting on these comings of Christ shows me that I often forget how to wait on the Lord. I begin to believe that I am the master and maker of my own life, that joy is self-made through my own ingenuity and hard work, that the things I most long for are within my grasp if I can only master the mad task of controlling my own life that I am the engineer of my own deliverance. And into these fevered deceptions, Advent comes each year and quietly asks me to pause, to remember that we do not bring the kingdom of God to the world through our own efforts or on our own timeline. We wait for one outside of us and outside of time. With all Israel and all nations in all the world, we wait for our coming king. We must be a people waiting, knowing that what we really need is the work that God does. This psalm then, after what I've said already, then goes into a different sort of space, which actually sets it apart for me as one of my favorite psalms. Because having put his trust in the Lord, petitioning for him to do his work one more time. The psalmist actually then gives a description of the, the mystical, paradoxical way in which God does his work, showing that he's actually doing something that we cannot do. The psalmist continues, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace 
kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky and then finishes again in hopeful expectation. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Another of our guides this Advent has been Malcolm Geitz, whose uh, his book here, David's Crown, is, is a series of poems in response to each of the Psalms, and we've been reading them with our Psalms uh, each Sunday. And he also, on his blog, gives a little bit of a comment on each of these Psalms, and he actually says that Psalm 85 contains, in his view, two of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. And he's referring to these verses, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And then he goes on, but we live in a culture that has divorced and separated mercy and truth. On the one hand, the truth telling of a call out culture shows no mercy. On the other, the apparent mercy of laissez-faire indifference or instant affirmation of every behavior shows scant regard for truth. But what God has joined together we should not put asunder. You see, this is the way that God has done his God thing, has made a way where we cannot make a way, has made peace where we can only see conflict. Because we have these competing values in our mind, these truths that we cannot hold together. We have here righteousness and peace. And in righteousness, we have the demand that justice be satisfied. Justice being satisfied means that all debts are paid and all sins are accounted for. And on this side, we have peace, which is restoration of all people. But we know that if all our sins are accounted for, if we are called to pay the debts of all our sins, let alone the sins of our fathers, then we will not have restoration we will have destruction. We have on this side, peace, which requires mercy. And we have this tension in our minds between justice and mercy, between righteousness and peace. And the miracle that God does that we cannot attain is to make these things kiss, to make these things touch and to operate in that liminal space that touching point between justice and mercy. We, by our own strength, fall too much on one side or the other. A world where justice entirely wins, where all sins must be accounted for and paid for, is caught into the curse that an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. If all sins must be paid for, there will be nothing left of this world. But if mercy wins, if we fall entirely on the side of mercy, then there is no righteousness. There is no goodness in the world. There is no real sin to talk of that people get away scot-free for doing great harm to one another. You see, we have these ideas that we cannot reconcile, but God can. He works at this kissing point between righteousness and peace. And he does this in a great number of ways. The psalmist points out some here, but this is actually God's great joy to work in these places where we cannot. And the liminal spaces, the kissing points between ideas that we have put in competition to one another. This book here by uh, Professor David Skeel, he's a law professor, I read a few years ago. It's called True Paradox, How Christianity Makes Sense of Our Complex World. 
And in it, he's asking its readers to see the the depth uh, and the complexity of what God is doing through the gospel, uh, lest we fall back on overly simplistic ideas that, that Christians have been accused of, but also Christians have often given. And as he is addressing specific issues that come up in Christian life, he says, we will need to explain sensations like our sense of beauty and evil, as well as the puzzles of morals and law. An ancient religion like Christianity may seem ill-equipped to make sense of these puzzles, every one of which is paradoxical in key respects, but precisely the opposite is true. We will find that Christianity is considerably more plausible than you may think. You see, God is the God of righteousness and peace, of justice and mercy, but he is also the God who is weak yet strong, who is defeated yet victorious, who is God but man, three but one, who calls us to live in the now and the not yet, who has given us freedom, yet has preordained all things, who is Lord of all, yet servant of all, who is transcendent yet imminent, God is always working at the kissing point between ideas that we often cannot reconcile. That is God doing his God, God thing, and why we must wait on him and ask him to do it for us one more time. But the skeptics among you so far might feel that we're just playing a game of abstraction, that we can say impossible things with words, right? You might be looking at me saying, you know, congratulations, you've just listed a bunch of contradictions and feel good about yourself. And it's true, I have listed a bunch of contradictions and I do feel good about myself. (laughs) But where it really is powerful is that God makes it real. God actually works and acts in reality. We have a God who is not satisfied in being an abstraction, but actually takes the abstract, the logos, and puts flesh on it. The God of the incarnation, who wants to show this in a tangible lived reality. This is our God. And the way in which this can feel paradoxical, yet be real, uh, for me, this, uh, an analogy for this, actually, as all of us, I'm sure, is thinking this way, is actually comes out in, in a kind of a mathematical way. You might know a Venn diagram. This is a Venn diagram. These are like two ideas. And you might be familiar with this, there's an overlap. If only it was so simple that you had justice and mercy and a nice big overlap where we could just do stuff. But often what it feels like is this, mutually exclusive, justice and mercy, and we can find no overlap between them. But what we see in this witness is a kissing point where these two things touch. I find this particularly interesting and to get a little bit mathy for a bit, because these actually have no area in common. There's actually no like overlap. What they share is a single point. And in math, a point is an infinitely small thing. What that means that if you try to like point to it with some actual object, you would miss because the chances of you hitting an infinitely small point is infinitely small, (laughs) right? So in a way we cannot attain it, but it is actually very real. These things are actually touching. And at this point that we cannot access, both of these things are true. 
This is an, an analogy, but this is where my math mind goes when I think about this. That God is operating in a space that is very, very real, but is something that we cannot access. So how does God do this? You can move on from that now. How does God do this? Well, he does this through things like Christmas and Easter, right? These high points on our church calendar where God is doing his God work. You know, we see on the cross that we remember in Easter and in his resurrection, the way in which God is defeated yet victorious. How he is weak, but he is strong. How justice is satisfied and all sins are paid for, yet mercy is extended to the human race. How he is dead, but alive. You see, at this kissing point is the cross. The place where God has done his action, not as some abstract philosophy, but he came into the world and he did it. He did something we wouldn't do. I think often people have looked at the the cross and the resurrection and kind of thought, I wouldn't have done it that way. And they often pick a solution which lands too much on mercy or too much on justice. But thanks be to God that we are not in charge, but he is, and he does it in his way. The way in which justice and mercy are satisfied in the cross. But this advent, as we wait for the incarnation on Christmas, we see it too in the incarnation, these two kind of acts of God's salvation, the incarnation and the resurrection. In the incarnation, we see how God is so big, yet so small, that he is Lord over all of us, but dependent on his parents. How he's big, but small, weak, but strong, God, but man. This paradoxical space that is not an abstraction, but where God is actually doing his work. This morning, I want to invite you to know that we must wait on God to do his God thing because he's doing something that we simply cannot do in these paradoxical ways. But just because it's paradoxical does not mean it's not real. He has done it and will continue to do it. And therefore, our posture must be to wait, to wait on him to join with the psalmist and with my youngest son to turn to our God and say one more time, God, will you do your God thing? Will you do that thing that only you can do that I cannot do? God, will you be God to us? And the posture of Christians is always to be a people waiting, waiting for God. And as we close here, I wanna give one final thought on how we can wait. Because in our um, New Testament reading, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he gives a bit of a description of this. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish. You see, one of the paradoxes that we are called to enter into is that now and not yet, how God has attained salvation for us and will attain salvation for us. And part of that posture means that we are always waiting and we are always striving. We are always passive and we are always active. Peter describes this as wait while you wait. We strive. Strive what? To be found at peace. To be found at the location of peace. If you like to be found at that kissing point between righteousness and peace. Knowing that we will not attain it. We will not land at that absolute center. We'll always be on one side or the other and be tempted to slip even further away. But we must 
be acting in the world, constantly course correcting so that we might be closer to where God is working in Christ at that kissing point. So we need to be a people striving to be seeking things in the world and working in the world that are as close as we can get to that place of peace that we cannot attain by ourselves. This is not a description of complete passivity because actually in this kissing point, because we're not just falling into these pre-assigned buckets that in a sense can be more simple, we actually find ourselves in a very generative, creative space to do things that other communities may not do, to seek solutions that may not be found elsewhere. This creates beauty, it creates art, it creates actions, it creates pursuits of justice and restoration together. We have uh, one of the global mission partners we support, uh, Andrew and Anne May, who are working in prisons in South Africa. And they're working for restorative justice there. And what they are striving to do is to operate as close as possible to that kissing point. They may not always get it right, but they're striving to find peace between victims and victimizers. Not in naive ways that kind of act as if there's like a simplistic forgiveness that victims just have to forgive the victimizer and we're not dealing with the horror and the tragedy of it. But how can we enter into these situations and and bring restoration between people who have been enemies so that there might be life? Always course correcting, getting it wrong sometimes, but striving while we wait to be found at peace. So friends, this morning, I invite us to be a people waiting on God. A people who know that God is the one who can do this work, bringing together things that we have found to be at war and wait on him for what we need. Because we are each in personal situations where we feel this inner strife, this uh, inner conflict between things fighting themselves inside us. We also each find ourselves in, in places of strife and conflict with people around us in workplaces and in families. We need God's peace. And we also look out into a broken world where there is so much conflict and brokenness and we wonder if there can be a way forward. We look at conflict in the very land that the psalmist is praying for and we say, can there be a way forward? Can righteousness and peace kiss each other? Can justice and mercy be satisfied? In God, they can. And so we must wait on him. And instead of relying on our strength, turn to God and say one more time, God, will you do your God thing? Will you do it in my life, in the lives of those around me and in this whole world, God, one more time? And as we wait, strive to be found at that place of peace. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, thank you that you are the one who causes righteousness and peace to kiss. Lord, this Advent, may we be reminded to wait on you to do your work. May we be like children coming before you, asking you, our Father, to do the thing that you do, to make a way where we cannot make a way, to do it one more time, knowing full well that it will not be the last time we ask this of you. And Lord, may you do it. May you bring peace into our lives, the lives of the people in this congregation and those around them. And may you bring peace to this world, Lord God, a work that only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amén.